Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with disturbing signals sent in the disgraceful questioning of Judge Jackson, which indicate a radical agenda the right-wing Republican senators want to pursue in conjunction with a right-wing Supreme Court with Senator Marsha Blackburn bringing up the Ninth Amendment and others bringing up the Commerce Clause. Joining us to explain what is at stake to the future of American law and the functioning of the U.S. government as the Supreme Court moves to employ the Ninth Amendment and undermine the Commerce Clause is Kimberly Whaley, an author, lawyer, media commentator and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former Assistant United States Attorney, Associate Independent Counsel in the Whitewater Investigation, and author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and her latest, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. Her forthcoming book is The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in Private Hands Erodes American Democracy, and we will discuss her article at the Hill, Judge Jackson's Confirmation Hearing offers vital civics lessons, as well as why did the new Manhattan DA kill the case against Trump, and why is Justice Clarence Thomas hospitalized? Then, with Secretary of State Blinken announcing that the U.S. has evidence members of Russia's forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine, we will speak with Kate McIntosh, the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law, She was an administrator responsible as deputy registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and was legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda. And she is deputy chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide. Then finally, we'll assess what came out of the extraordinary NATO summit today in Brussels, which President Zelensky addressed asking NATO for just 1% of its planes and tanks. Joining us is R. Daniel Kellerman, a professor of political science and law at Rutgers University and the chair of the Department of Political Science. He's the author of Euro-Legalism, the Transformation of Law and Regulation into the European Union and the Rules of Federalization, Institutions and Regulatory Politics in the EU and Beyond and serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of European Public Policy and West European Politics, and is a former member of the Executive Committee of the European Union Studies Association. We will discuss frustration expressed by some countries that the Biden administration has stressed steps it will not take to defend Ukraine, which have emboldened Putin. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She is also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, 
What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and the forthcoming book, The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in Private Hands Erodes American Democracy, and her latest book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. And she has an article at The Hill, Judge Jackson's Confirmation Hearings Offer Vital Civics Lessons. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kimberly Whaley. Thanks for having me, Ian. So obviously, not only did the Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings offer civics lessons, they offer lessons in civility, and there certainly was not a lot of that. It was absolutely disgusting how so many of those Republicans tried to paint her as soft on pornography. And it was never made clear, as far as I could tell, that the real issue here was that when those laws were written by Congress, the internet and social media was not as ubiquitous, and the laws were referring to how many pages of of pornography would be sent through the mail, and then according to the number of pages of pornography, the sentences were thus structured. But in the age of the internet, you, with one click, you can get a thousand. Uh, pictures of child pornography and therefore does the sentence mean you know that they spend a thousand years in jail so were you in any way disappointed or did you feel that these attack dogs that went after her Cotton and Cruz and Hawley and Marsha Blackburn and Mike Lee do you feel that they were in any way sufficiently swatted down well, Ian, I mean, there were, of course, some Republicans like Ben Sass who were respectful and asking legitimate questions just to, to make that clear. But I agree uh, it was it was really troubling to watch because I think they understood uh, that she knew what she was talking about. So it was important for them to continue to interrupt her. So she wasn't even able to get out uh, her answers that would explain, as you just did, that as as a judge, she was confined by the sentencing guidelines, by the the congressional statute, and that it was outdated. And I think I tweeted on this with respect to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. I don't recall them as members of the powerful United States Senate introducing legislation uh, to to update um, child sex abuse imagery laws to protect children and also to keep it up to date with how the digital age has changed the industry. And it is a tremendous, tremendous problem, but it's not one that any single judge can address. And certainly they have a lot more power than she does. Um, you know, the three you mentioned, Cotton, Hawley, and Cruz, of course, they're probably trying to run for president. So this was, a, this was a you know, whistles to the base. This was about getting votes. This was about stirring up anger and hatred, not about a legitimate debate about her her eligibility and candidacy for the Supreme Court. And in part, it's that that her eligibility is impeccable, right? Absolutely impeccable. And I say that as a law professor and someone who's lived in this industry for a long time, uh, she really knows her stuff and actually, uh, and she has tremendous experience, much more than the last three that were put on the court in that if you're looking at just a plain job description, she's been a district court judge, that is, she's been at the trial level, trial judges have to create a record and gather facts. She's also been an appellate court judge, so she knows what it's like to review a record. 
Uh, she understands also that the role is restrained. Uh, this Supreme Court doesn't seem to understand that. The people on the current Supreme Court, the conservative majority, which we can talk about more. She's also been a defense attorney. She understands what it's like to face the criminal justice system as a defendant. Uh, that's a civic duty that she served as a federal public defender. And it also makes it better for judges. If you've got good lawyers on both sides, she's also been on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, had to make policy, not as a lawmaker, but as a quasi lawmaker in sentencing. So so all of that, um, you know, it was disturbing to watch. Uh, she's shown through, I believe. But but no, I think honestly, Ian, I, I thought about this. I think she was probably briefed or prepped to just not poke the bear, that is not get into any of these debates um, where she could be be drawn out as someone who really does have a point of view that could be perceived as political. And I should say also, some people are saying, well, look what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. I think there's no comparison. He was able, for the most part, to answer, answer the question. Certainly, Coney Barrett was not rudely interrupted and shouted down in that way. And the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh had to do with potential uh, criminal liability, right? Um, you know, granted it was as a juvenile, granted it, that wasn't really the forum uh, to try that. However, no one has a right to sit on the Supreme Court. It's a job description. Um, and uh, and it's a job it's a job interview for a job description. And so I, I don't think that Amy, the, the allegations brought by, and forgive me, I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head, um, the, the person who who raised the allegations at the time of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. I don't think uh, that, that Christine Blasey Ford. Thank you, Christine Blasey Ford. I don't think that was beyond the pale. And I don't think it's even closely comp- comparable uh, to somehow suggesting that um, this just this potential justice is soft on child sex abuse imagery. That's just not fair. And again, I'm speaking with Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and her forthcoming book is The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power and Private Hand Erodes American Democracy, and her latest book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. And she has an article at The Hill, Judge Jackson's Confirmation Hearings Offer Vital Civics Lessons. So let's talk a little about what you've written in your article at The Hill, Judge Jackson's Confirmation Hearings Offer Vital Civics Lessons. I think in, in many ways they offer vital warnings about how far the right-wing judiciary in this country is prepared to go, and that includes the Supreme Court, of course, which is heavily stacked uh, with a six to three to majority of, of conservatives, many of whom are ultra conservatives, when you have people in the, these these senators questioning the nominee about the Ninth Amendment, which Marsha Brackburn brought up, and the Commerce Clause, that sends chills up my spine. The Ninth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is one of the least referred to amendments in decisions uh, by the Supreme Court. It's also the most confusing, controversial, and misunderstood amendment to the Constitution, and this amendment reserves all rights not listed in the Constitution to the people. So what is Marsha Blackburn talking about? Well, you have to think also about Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island Center for Rhode Island, who did a used his time to make a presentation about the dark money that has funded the conservative ju- judges across the country. The, you know, I think by his accounts, four hundred million dollars over the past few years 
um, to basically pack the judiciary with sometimes unqualified federal judges who serve for life. And I say unqualified because we saw so many Trump appointees fail the basic metrics of, um, you know, having a resume that that is justified for these kinds of long term positions. So my concern is that someone like Marsha Blackburn brings up the Ninth Amendment. And, and, and if you don't understand what that is, that makes sense. Um, but it basically says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others. So translated, it says, okay, there might be rights that aren't expressed in the Constitution. They're still out there. Um, we're hearing a lot about abortion and, oh, abortion's not enumerated. Well, Ian, lots of rights aren't enumerated. The right to associate freely with the people you want to, the right to decide how to raise your children, the right to decide whom to marry, the right to contract, the right to decide in your own profession. There's a lots of things that aren't enumerated. Most of those were found in the due process clause by the court. That is, you know, there's just certain things that are so bound up with the concept of liberty that government shouldn't be sitting around telling you what medical treatment you can and can't have, for example. I think what's happening is behind the scenes, uh, the, the sort of machinery behind this far right packing of the courts is teeing up an argument in the Supreme Court that all of these rights that are founded in the due process clause, including abortion, really should be founded in the Ninth Amendment, and therefore we can't recognize them at all. I think that is that is really, as a constitutional scholar, that's where I see this is going. And I say what is disturbing about it is that Marsha Blackburn also tweeted during the hearings language from the Declaration of Independence claiming it's in the Constitution. So this is someone who really doesn't know anything about the Constitution. And I have to assume that she was told to talk about the Ninth Amendment. The Commerce Clause also came up a lot. The Commerce Clause has been construed by the Supreme Court uh, that the Congress is able to regulate or make laws governing interstate commerce. So it's that idea of, okay, if something crosses state boundaries, Congress can come in and pass laws that affect the entire country. Well, after the Civil War, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, post-Civil War anti-slavery amendments designed to incorporate informally enslaved uh, Americans into, into American society, notwithstanding racism, uh, the Southern states basically ignored those constitutional provisions. So so the, the court started using its Commerce Clause power, its 14th Amendment power, equal protection. I mentioned due process. All of these kind of powers in the Constitution to say, listen, we're going to impose national legislation to make the states comply with the Constitution, kind of as the federal big brother, for lack of a better word, because we as the people have decided that that you know people of color should be treated as full humans in America. Again, if the court rolls back on the Commerce Clause and says, you know, actually, you know, federal government, Congress, you don't have all this power to, to sort of tell the states what to do, we could really see us roll back a lot of rights and civil liberties um, many, many decades. And if the court does this, that is basically like an amendment to the Constitution. And what I fear is that, you know, there are dark forces, frankly, dark money um, that has teed this up for very carefully and very thoughtfully. Uh, and it's going to hit us like a brick, a ton of bricks, right, when it comes down um, through a Supreme Court decision on the, under the guise of originalism. Look, I look at the Ninth Amendment. I'm reading the plain text. That's where you have to lodge these rights. The framers thought that that it should be there. If it's not there, it goes nowhere. Now, maybe that's a good argument, Ian. I, I'm not. I'm not disputing that there's not a colorable argument there. 
it's just really terrifying um, given this court's disrespect for precedent with Roe versus Wade and what happened in Texas. This court does not care about stare decisis. It's willing to just railroad over established law. Um, what scares me is, you know, really major turnarounds in ways that is going to affect Americans like we have no idea. And I know we'll also potentially talk about what's going to happen with the with regulations by federal agencies. I mean, this court is really poised to massively shift the way the federal government operates vis-a-vis -vis the states. And we're not going to see progress. We're going to see retrenchment into old ways that we all thought we had left behind in society. So it's worth noting, surely, Kimberly Whaley, that the southern states have violated the Constitution and that in many ways what the reactionaries on the, on the Supreme Court and in the United States Senate seem to be teeing up is for on two levels. One, the Commerce Clause in terms of regulation, meaning that they're literally new to the Congress's ability to regulate, and we've already seen an opening wedge of that with the OSHA decision, and now they're considering getting rid of the, of the Clean Air Act. So there's nothing more profound and radical and powerful than the idea that this unelected Supreme Court could have more power to determine our future on this planet with global warming than our representatives. That in itself is just breathtaking. But when So Eisenhower couldn't send the troops down to Little Rock. The FBI operates on the Commerce Clause, don't they? I mean, <laughs> it's unbelievable, the idea that you could t take it away and turn everything back to the states. And, of course, that is what the mantra for the Jim Crow South was, states' rights. Right. I mean, that was the that was the mantra. And, you know, it's not just Commerce Clause. There's something called the non-delegation doctrine. So so laws are made by Congress and the Commerce Clause is the way that Congress can make to a large degree, make national laws. So if you pull back, Congress can't do it. The other way a lot of laws are made. Um, I mean, I think it's a you know few hundred a year by Congress, several thousand a year by federal agencies, anything with the word department of, department of Congress, department of labor, um, department of justice, um, securities and exchange commission, anything with the word commission, they make a lot of laws too. There's, those are called regulations. The court is also poised to say, you know what? Only Congress can make laws. Agencies can't do it. And this goes all the way back to FDR and the New Deal, where basically after the stock market crash in the 1920s, um, you know, the economy was in shambles and FDR came in with a, a Democratic Congress and said, listen, we need more regulation. We can't just we can't just let the markets manage the economy and public the public good, because look what happened. So FDR, um, Congress started creating agencies and they started issuing regulations. And the Supreme Court, conservative court at the time, started striking them down, saying, listen, agencies can't do this. Only Congress can do it. This is the first time. We heard the word court packing, right? This, uh, basically, FDR said, okay, you're going to do that. I'm going to add, with my Congress, more people to the United States Supreme Court. I'm going to pack the court so that you can't keep striking things down because the American people need this, right? They're, they're in tr trouble. This is, I mean, FDR was aggressive. I'm not saying that this, this, that, I mean, he really enhanced the power of the presidency in massive ways. So I'm not, not say, I'm not a presidential historian or, or a legal historian, but I'm just, just saying this is why he did it. And the Supreme Court backed down. They said, OK, we'll stop. We'll stop striking down these agency powers because we don't want you to take our authority away by adding members of the court. Fast forward to 2022. 
that that back, you know, backing off that happened in the 1930s, the court, I think, is going to go back and say, you know what? They, the court shouldn't have backed off. That is, agencies shouldn't be making laws. Agencies answer to the president. The president's supposed to execute laws. So we're not going to let agencies make laws. And by the way, we're not going to let Congress make laws that affect states. So this is really, I mean, a dismantling potentially of the federal government. And some people really want that. You know, some people really think the federal government has too much power. But but my argument, Ian, is, you know, careful what you wish for, because it's not it's not just the things that you don't like, like declaring, you know, um, I mean, uh, uh, declaring certain species sacrosanct. Right. I mean, they're or, or protected, I should say, by the federal government so that you can't you can't infringe on certain territories uh, for commerce, for example, because it affects species. Um, but they're, you know, the the regulatory state and, you know, the laws of this country are extremely, extremely complex. So if the court takes a machete to that ability of Congress to pass laws that affect the United States or the ability of agencies to, to use the expertise, right? You want people in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission who are scientists that understand nuclear fuel. You want them kind of weighing in on what the pop, the proper laws are. You take a machete to the ability of any of these agencies to do that, it could be really, it could be chaos, Ian. And it's so nuanced legally that I just don't pe think people have their eye on it. Um, policymakers, think tanks, progressive, um, and frankly, even corporate America, I don't think people are understanding broadly the stakes that are that you and I are discussing. So I'm really actually grateful for the opportunity to explain this, Ian, because so few people, including people in the media, have their finger on this. Well, this is, of course, extraordinarily and extraordinarily important. But just in the last couple of minutes, there's a couple of other issues, uh, obviously not as interesting or important, but worth noting. One is that Clarence Thomas is still in hospital and there hadn't been any word about what's going on with him. And the other, of course, is the Manhattan prosecutor who investigated Donald Trump's financial dealings in his resignation letter said that Trump is guilty of numerous felony violations. And there's absolutely no understanding that we're getting from the new district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, why he basically spiked these cases that both Pomerantz and Kerry Dunn, who are both of whom considered a top-of-the-line prosecutors. And that is very mysterious. Uh, and, of course, Bragg's office keep insisting that the prosecution is continuing, but the resignation letter of Mark Pomerantz makes it clear that it's not, and the grand jury is about to expire in April. So just to touch on both of them, if you will, for a minute. Sure. I'll take the second one first, and that is what's happening in the grand jury. Uh, you know, I think I agree with you. It looks like it's, for all intents and purposes, dead. Um, that is the investigation, the criminal investigation from Manhattan. Cy Vance was chugging along, but then decided not to run again for DA. Manhattanites put um, Adlin Bragg in the job. I, I doubt they thought that that would include killing the Trump uh, criminal investigation. It sounds like the top prosecutors believed that they had enough evidence to indict Donald Trump. And so Bragg's decision, although apparent decision, although squarely within his authority, um, prosecutors don't have to bring any case. It's their discretion, I think, is probably one of the most monumental decisions in the history of American criminal law. Um, that is not to pursue Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, 
he might say it's ongoing, but once the the special grand jury expires, it's we can just put that one to rest because this grand jury was specifically impaneled for this investigation. Usually it's a grand jury's hear all criminal evidence and you just kind of put it in front of them as it comes along, depending on what case. It can be lots of cases. This one was specially picked. Once they're gone, their expertise goes with them. So that's not, you know, that's troubling for, I think, a lot of people want to see some accountability for Donald Trump. Um, on the question of, of Clarence Thomas, I mean, of course, this is all speculation, but, it, but you know, in Washington, I live right outside Washington. Um, a lot of these people, uh, high profile people in Washington, people with money have concierge doctors who who, you know, they pay a lot of money, a monthly fee. I'm not saying Don, uh, Mitt Donald or Clarence Thomas did this, but, but you know, there, there's access in to very high t- top quality doctors at a premium that'll come to your home. So the fact that he's still in the hospital means it's probably kind of serious. Um, and, you know, I, if he, if something were to ha- happen where he's, he's unable to serve as a Supreme Court justice anymore, um, that would be a, a massive wrinkle in uh, in what we talked about earlier, that is, it would seem to be a pers- conservative co- uh, push to take over the court and then dismantle um, the federal government um, and turn it back to kind of a potentially a pre pre stock market crash, you know, capitalist s- situation where um, corporations do as they please and state governments manage everything else. Um, that that would be major, uh, you know. Uh, the president, President Biden, would potentially get a second pick um, too far in advance of the presidential election to have the, you know, the cute maneuver again happen to Obama. But of course, that happened to Obama with Merrick Garland. But then again, you know, November elections are coming up, and if the Senate goes to Senate goes to Republican control, it doesn't matter what happens to the to the sitting Supreme Court justices. I have no doubt that Mitch McConnell would hold open any open seat until the next election, which is again, from a constitutional standpoint, an abomination. Um, But I blame in part President Obama for not standing up for the constitution in that moment. He really should have fought for his nominee and he didn't. Um, So at the end of the day, people ask me all the time, what what can we do? We have to fight, we have to fight for the rule of law and the constitution. And I know I sound partisan, um, but but in my mind, once you dismantle the bridge, everybody goes down with the bridge and it's the bridge of the constitution that protects everybody's rights. And that that's what I'm really worried about, Ian, going forward. Well, just in closing, of course, Clarence Thomas is the leader of the reactionary clique on the, on the Supreme Court. And I'm not even sure that the Chief Justice is really running the show. But just a, a final word, though, on what's going on with Alvin Bragg and why he killed the case against Trump, which the prosecutors have gone public on in a letter that the New York Times has saying that Trump was guilty of numerous felony violations and they had a strong case. I don't know. Maybe I'm too suspicious, but I'd look into corruption in New York. I mean, it's Trump was schooled by Roy Cohn. Uh, there's all... You talk about dark forces. Well, there's some dark forces in New York with the mafia and the ability to throw cases, etc. I think this requires some investigative journalism, don't it? Or at least... Uh, Alvin Bragg has some explaining to do, doesn't he? I certainly think Alvin Bragg has some explaining to do. I mean, you know, we have to be careful to speculate, but of course, you know, Donald Trump has famously, Teflon Don, dodged and dodged and dodged and dodged and dodged and dodged accountability um, for what most 
criminal experts have looked at will say, you know, our good faith potential <laughs> obstruction of justice charges, uh, election interference charges. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to prove tax fraud and very hard to prove, um, you know, uh, securities fraud. But it, these very experienced prosecutors apparently believe it, the case is there. So so you do have to scratch your head and say, wait a minute, at, at what point are, are politics coming into play, particularly because Cy Vance thought it important enough to hire these two people and to panel a special grand jury. It wasn't wrapped up in December of 2021, right? It, it wasn't or it wasn't ramping down as far as was public. That only happened when the new um, when the new DA came in. So so I do hope there's there's some airing of that, but it's not going to change, at least in this moment, um, the outcome unless there's a, a new a new DA in the next round and the statute of limitations hasn't expired, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, that That's always the, the big wild card. Once the statute of limitations expires, every, everybody moves on, even if you're guilty. Well, Kimberly Wiley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me in. And again, I mean, speak with Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and the forthcoming book, The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in Private Hands Erodes American Democracy. And her latest book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. And she has an article at The Hill, Judge Jackson's Confirmation Hearings Offer Vital Civics Lessons. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the announcement by U.S. Secretary of State Blinken that members of Russia's armed forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kate McIntosh, the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as a deputy registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and previously was a legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda. And she's the deputy chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kate McIntosh. Hi, Ian. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Wednesday, Secretary of State Blinken said, Today we can announce that based on information currently available, the U.S. government assesses that members of Russian forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. We have seen numerous credible reports of indiscriminate attacks and deliberate attacks targeting civilians, as well as other atrocities, and Russian forces have destroyed apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, critical infrastructure, civilian vehicles, shopping centers, and ambulances, leaving thousands of innocent civilians killed or wounded. Many of the sites Russia forces have hit have also been clearly identifiable as used by civilians. So this is following, of course, President Biden's remark that he thinks Putin is a war criminal. 
So mm -hmm. the rhetoric is obviously happening, but what's the reality in terms of documenting and bringing Putin to trial? Well, I think it's fairly straightforward, actually. Um, the kinds of issues that Secretary Blinken was identifying in that quote you just read out, such as targeting of civilian objectives or using weapons that are either indiscriminate by nature or which in their use cannot discriminate between military objectives and civilian objectives. Those are war crimes. Um, earlier, I know the administration had been somewhat hesitant to declare that war crimes were being committed in their view. And I think that's because, of course, these acts would have to be intentional. So it'd have to be an intention to direct attacks at civilians and civilian objects. And when I say civilian objects, I mean hospitals, apartment buildings, uh, schools, etc. Um, and of course, it's not completely obvious without doing an investigation whether these acts are intentional or not. But I think with the weight of the evidence, the administration has felt comfortable in saying, listen, this is clearly uh, intentional and, and making that call. Of course, that's not the way judicial proceedings would go about it. It will be necessary for any investigation to clearly establish that there was a deliberate intent. So that would have to be established in a court of law for war crimes to be proven. But there have been a lot of reports from the field, from reporters and from the Ukrainian military. And of course, you know, you obviously have to vet those reports. But in general, apparently, the Russian soldiers are ill-equipped are ill-trained and have been lied to. And there have been a number of, of atrocities committed in the cities, but they've been infinitely more careful about what they do in the cities, knowing that they're oppressed and people with cameras. But in the countryside, apparently, routinely, Russian soldiers who are not properly fed go into farmhouses, loot, rape, steal possessions, and if anybody objects, they shoot them. So... I think there's a lot of war crimes going on across the country. That's, that's my impression. What's yours? Well, certainly what you've just described is, it is certainly consists of a number of you know, horrendous war crimes. I mean, in general, uh, for the, pro the prosecutor is investigating this situation anyway. I mean, the International Criminal Court prosecutor, as you know, not only uh, was the prosecutor already seized of the situation in Ukraine since 2014, but 39 different member states of the International Criminal Court referred the situation to the prosecutor. Which means that the prosecutor no longer has to ask the permission of the pretrial chamber, the permission of a, a bench of judges to open the investigation. He can proceed directly to doing that. So that's, he will be now facing the task of trying to gather information, you know, to the appropriate evidentiary standard um, to be able to present that, to mount a case, to trace the indictments, to decide who should be charged with responsibility for the crime. And then, of course, to attempt to prove that beyond reasonable doubt. So, I mean, this is the way things go in these situations, of course. We see media reports and we get a general idea of what's going on. But once the prosecutor steps in, it has to be really legally rigorous. Well, most of the 39 countries, of course, are European countries, but they also include Australia, Canada, Colombia, and Costa Rica. But neither Russia, Ukraine, nor the United States are signatories to the ICC. So what kind of standing can Ukraine get as a victim here? Well, Ukraine accepted the jurisdiction of the court 
back in 2014, so four events from 2014 onwards, which is something that's open to any state. If they're not a party to the court, they can make a declaration accepting the court's jurisdiction over the situation on their territory. So the prosecutor has actually been carrying out what's called a preliminary uh, investigation, a preliminary inquiry into the situation in Ukraine ever since the Russian invasion of Crimea back in, in 2014. So the court is properly seized of the situation in Ukraine, which means that any crimes committed on the territory can be prosecuted. And it doesn't matter who the perpetrator is. In other words, the nationality of the perpetrator is not relevant because the court already has jurisdiction based on the territory, the territorial jurisdiction of Ukraine. Well, what seems to be happening now is that war crimes are, in fact, Putin's military policy, for the want of a better description. I mean, their military is tied down. They're apparently now putting in themselves in defensive positions. They're digging trenches and putting mines around them. So they're stalled. We know they're not getting fed properly and that their morale is low, etc. So what Putin is resorting to now is to pound the civilian targets while leaving the military targets you know, in a defensive position to pound the civilian targets to break the morale of the Ukrainian people and to terrorize them into submission. So it would seem to me that this is actually a war crime wrapped up in a military doctrine. Well, that's exactly right. And that would be exactly the kind of case that the prosecutor would be putting together. Uh, I mean, if he has the evidence against someone like Vladimir Putin, that this is really an orchestrated, clearly directed campaign from the top. I mean, he would have to put that together in order to charge Vladimir Putin with what's happening on the ground. And that can be an important and involved part of the work in these cases, of course, because the International Criminal Court is looking to investigate and prosecute those most responsible for the crimes. So those at the top of a chain of command. But building that chain of command and showing that those instructions were given from the top can be quite challenging. But it's exactly the way you frame it in would be the kind of picture that the prosecutor would be trying to paint, um, assuming that the evidence leads in that direction. And again, I'm speaking with Kate McIntosh, who's Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as Deputy Registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and previously was a legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders, and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda. And she's the Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide. So... In terms of assuming that there's an end to this war, and at this point the Ukrainian forces have done remarkably well, and there's, there's even an outside chance they could defeat the Russians, but on the other hand, Putin seems to be doubling down and is determined and probably won't end until he uh, flattens the entire country. So there's a possibility that if and when the issue of reconstruction came up, that the $400 billion that the Europeans have frozen of Russian money could be used to uh, rebuild the country, assuming that Putin doesn't claim it or occupy it. But what is the mechanism after this war is ended to hold him and his coterie to account? I mean, obviously, they're not going to make themselves available. 
Well, that's a, I mean, that's a really important point. The International Criminal Court can't try people in absentia. So unless uh, Putin is, you know, comes into the custody of the International Criminal Court, it will be impossible to make a case out against him. And you know, there are a number of scenarios we might imagine. I mean, one is that perhaps if Vladimir Putin leaves power or is ousted from power, he might potentially be handed over by whoever the successor authorities are. And that's what we saw in the case of Slobodan Milosevic, of course, in Serbia, who was indicted while he was still head of state. And then after a change of leadership was handed over because Serbia wanted to move on and wanted access to the European Union. And so was put under quite some pressure to hand over Milosevic and, um, and support the international justice prosecutions. So that might be something that happens with Vladimir Putin. Um, I mean, otherwise he will, in the other example we could look at, of course, is President al-Bashir of Sudan, who'd been indicted by the International Criminal Court and whose travel has been somewhat restricted, former president, I should say, in that, um, as far as I understand it, he always verified with any country he was set to travel, he would have to verify in advance whether they were going to hand him over to the International Criminal Court. And he only traveled to countries where he'd received an assurance that that wouldn't happen. That could also be uh, an issue for President Putin if he's indicted, that it could just limit his travel while he does remain um, in Russia. But uh, yeah, I mean, he does have to be in the custody of the court for that to go ahead. As far as reparations are concerned, that's a different matter. So that would not be dependent on an international criminal trial, although there is provision at the International Criminal Court for victims to receive some kind of compensation, victims of the crimes that are tried at the court. But the larger issue of reparations between states would be something that would be dealt with under general international law, possibly involving the International Court of Justice in The Hague. So... The Ukrainians have taken a number of Russian prisoners. If they captured prisoners who were involved in war crimes, they could extradite them, could they not? Yes, they certainly could. They could try them themselves. Uh, they could be tried in Ukraine. They could be extradited to another country that wanted to try them, although Ukraine would probably be in a better position because it would have access to evidence and witness statements and so on. Or they could hand them over to the International Criminal Court if the International Criminal Court felt that these people were senior enough to be tried at the court. Because as I said before, the International Criminal Court will be looking to try those most responsible. And it also has limited resources. So it's unlikely to want low-level members of the military, even if they've committed war crimes. I think from the perspective of the International Criminal Court, it would really be ideal if those kind of people were tried in national jurisdictions. So how much do you think this is getting to Putin. I mean, when Biden called him a war criminal, uh, Putin had the U.S. ambassador in Moscow called in and they complained that that language was undiplomatic. I mean, given the atrocities that he's committing and murdering a country next door before our eyes, it's a bit rich that he's feeling a, a little insulted by being called a war criminal. And he still insists on in terms of his own audience in Russia, which he is increasingly controlling. I mean, it's becoming completely Orwellian in Russia now. Putin's police are roaming around the streets grabbing kids' uh, iPhones or smartphones and saying, uh, checking their, them to see if they're getting uh, news from alternative sources. I mean, he's completely controlling the narrative within Russia in this Orwellian way, but not what's happening in the outside world. Do you think he cares about 
what the outside world thinks about what he's doing? Well, I actually thought that that was an interesting reaction to the accusation of being a war criminal. I mean, at least it tells us that uh, he, he does uh, have some respect, at least for the appearance of abiding by the rules of war, which is perhaps all that we can cling on to at the moment. I mean, it's not that he said, yeah, I don't care. Those rules don't apply to me. You know, this is how I'm going to deal with the situation because I'm the boss. I mean, he clearly was not happy about that characterization, which effectively means he was saying, I do believe in the laws of war and I'm actually not violating them. So it, we're in one of those weird situations that you find, for example, around the international prohibition on torture, that even though the prohibition on torture is violated in every country in the world, which is a very sad fact, nobody is willing to say that they support or agree with torture, right? So in a way, even though what matters, of course, is what's happening on the ground, and you've you've talked about some of those horrendous things, Ian. Uh, so the laws of war are clearly not being enforced. It's not working at the moment. But interestingly, he does still seem to care about the perception of following the laws of war, which shows us that they do have some purchase on him at some level. Well, not to insult your profession, Kate, but Putin is a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so he does like to wrap his actions in legalisms, at least to seek some sort of legal justification before he does what is essentially illegal. But that's his MO. So just in closing then, justice may be delayed in this case, but do you think justice will be denied? Who knows? I mean, there are other situations around the world, of course, horrendous situations that we've all been watching with horror. I mean, the most obvious is Syria. It's been years since we've been watching exactly the same, even worse things happening in Syria for so long. And of course, Russia's involved there as well. And there have been there's been, you know, the international community has been blocked in moving forward at the International Criminal Court that has no jurisdiction. The Security Council can't refer the case because Russia, of course, is um, obstructing that and China also is not supporting it. So we're seeing other terrible situations of impunity around the world. In the Syrian situation, what we have seen is individuals who've left Syria being prosecuted in other countries under the principle of universal jurisdiction. So there was recently the case in Koblenz in Germany of a Syrian individual being prosecuted for a torture, I believe, under this universal jurisdiction provision. And there have been efforts such as the, um, the independent investigative mechanism for Syria, which is putting together under the auspices of the United Nations, is putting together a series of indictments either to assist national prosecutions like the German one or in the hope that there'll be some international accountability one day. And I think, you know, that might be the path that we see unfolding at the moment for Russia, although, of course, the International Criminal Court also has jurisdiction in this case. Well, Kate McIntosh, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thanks, Ian. And I've been speaking with Kate McIntosh, who's the Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law. She was an administrator responsible as Deputy Registrar for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and previously she was legal advisor to Doctors Without Borders and was part of post-conflict human rights field operations in Bosnia as well as Rwanda, and she's the Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing what came out of the extraordinary NATO summit today in Brussels, which President Zelensky addressed asking NATO for just 1% of its planes and tanks. General 
themselves gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is our Daniel Kellerman, a professor of political science and law and chair of the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University. He's the author of Euroillegalism, the Transformation of Law and Regulation in the European Union, and the Rules of Federalism, Institutions and Regulatory Politics in the EU and Beyond. And he serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of European Public Policy and West European Politics and is a former member of the Executive Committee of the European Union Studies Association. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Kellerman. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Now, there's an, what's called an extraordinary NATO meeting today in Brussels at which NATO warned Moscow against using chemical weapons in, in Ukraine and the G7 also joined in that warning, along with the European Union. They also sanctioned uh, about 400 individuals, all of the Duma, the Russian parliament, and a few more oligarchs. Biden said he welcomed 100,000 new refugees. He's going to Poland tomorrow, obviously, where the refugee issue will be discussed and investigated further. And he offered up a billion dollars in humanitarian assistance and another 11 billion over the next five years because of food insecurity threats. So that's pretty much the takeaway from today. And, of course, Ukraine's President uh, Zelensky did address the NATO summit virtually, and he said to them, you can give us just 1% of all of your planes, 1% of all your tanks, just 1%. You have thousands of fighter jets, but we have not been, but we have not been given one yet. We've turned to you for tanks so that you can unblock our cities. You have at least 20,000 tanks, but but we do not have a clear answer. So we're still back to that situation. And some critics in Europe have been suggesting that the U.S. and NATO have been signaling what they can't do, like a no-fly zone and not sending the Polish jets in, and that this has emboldened Putin. What do you think about that? Well, I don't think that's quite fair in the sense that, uh, you know, I think the picture is mixed. On the one hand, uh, the NATO allies with you know, a significant amount of leadership from the U.S. and the Biden administration, we have coordinated the strongest set of sanctions that anyone's ever seen in, in uh, you know, this kind of circumstance. So, that, you know, that part is unprecedented and, and impressive. And beyond that, we are supplying... Ukraine with not only with lots of money, but with uh, huge amounts of military hardware, things like that. So, you know, on the one hand, there is um, really concerted action and a show of unity from uh, the Western democracies. On the other hand, uh, as uh, President Zelensky is sort of suggesting there, there are some limits to what we're doing, not only um, on the military side, which I'll come back to, but even on the sanctions, there's an irony that there's these 
on the one hand, very powerful sanctions that are damaging um, and locking down whole aspects of the Russian economy. On the other hand, Europe continues to buy um, oil and gas from Russia and so is de facto funding the war. Okay? That's the main source of revenue for the Russian regime. So they're kind of sanctioning with one hand while handing him money with the other. And then on the military side, I mean, there's been a lot made of you know the emphasis that we won't do a no-fly zone. I don't, the no-fly zone wouldn't solve uh, Ukraine's problems, I think, anyway, because a lot of the destruction is coming from artillery and things like that. And I, I think, you know, the main point NATO's trying to make is they don't want to get engaged in direct military confrontation with Russian forces, um, which is, I, you know, I think fair enough. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a mixed uh, bag. I don't think we're only emphasizing what we won't do. I think um, it's a little bit of both. So let's talk about what could be done, though. In, in other words, to bridge the gap here, obviously what Zelensky is saying just gives 1%. How do they up their ante? Because, I mean, President Biden was asked at the press conference at, at the NATO headquarters about a chemical attack. So assuming that Putin ups the ante and uses chemical weapons in there, and they've been signaling that by accusing the... Ukrainians and the Americans are having some secret program and a secret lab. So there's a concern that that's a prelude for for Putin up in the ante using chemical weapons. Biden said in response to that question, we would respond, we would respond. If Putin uses it, the nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. So again, this situation is very likely to get worse, isn't it? Yeah, look, it is. And it is important, uh, you know, with Putin to send those powerful signals. He's someone who only responds to force. And, you know, if we look back at all the events in recent years that led uh, to this outcome, I don't think the right conclusion, something you hear in the media, something people are citing, often this guy, John Mearsheimer, a a professor from University of Chicago and and others who make arguments like him that we sort of... um, uh, basically provoke this outcome with the expansion of NATO and things like that. I think none of that is correct. I think rather uh, that the the fact that uh, the U.S. and NATO allies and Western countries didn't react more strongly to the previous acts of aggression by the Putin regime is, is what encouraged him to think he could get away with this, right? So in both his actions in Syria, where we talked about red lines and didn't enforce them, but then later uh, you know, his actions in, in Georgia and elsewhere you know, g- gave him you know, the idea that you know, he could sort of get away with this. So, yeah, we n- definitely need to be very strong. So I think the signals we need to send aren't signals that some people are talking about, like off ramps or ways he could settle. We need to rather just send very strong signals of, of deterrence. Now, I think in terms of what we do concretely, I think we need to keep pouring in, which uh, President Biden announced today, I think a billion in new assistance, including anti-aircraft systems, anti-armor weapons, drones, ammo, those kind of things. And I think that's what we need to accelerate uh, uh, to get to the Ukrainian army, which is fighting incredibly brave and, and quite successful you know, resistance where they're stopping that uh, the Russian advances. And I think they need to be able to... Um, basically destroy more of those 
uh, Russian uh, uh, tanks and arm, you know, armored vehicles and everything by having more of this uh, you know, drone capacity and things like that. So I think basically supporting them with weaponry while avoiding uh, sort of having U.S. planes directly uh, or NATO planes directly shooting at uh, Russian ones is, is probably the way to uh, escalate uh, for now, so to speak. So in taking in the 100,000 refugees, tomorrow, of course, Putin will be in Poland where you have a, a government that's actually turning back the clock on uh, democracy, but nevertheless is obviously uh, alarmed at Russia's incursion into Ukraine and shelling and sending missiles 12 miles from their border. So mm-hmm. what do you think can be done in terms of bolstering these frontline states? Because... Putin has weaponized refugees. He did that when he got involved in Syria. After his involvement in Syria, there was a massive exodus of refugees into Europe, which caused all kinds of political problems in emboldening the, the far right in Europe and led to Brexit, etc. So how is Europe going to cope with 10 million, at this point, 10 million Europe, Ukrainian refugees? And there could be a lot more. Yeah, I mean, there's not 10 million who've uh, entered the EU yet. I think there's like maybe the 10 million figure you're referring to internally displaced as well. But yes, um, there are already a few million in Europe and, uh, you know, the numbers will continue to go up. I think um, I think in terms of you know, cope or, uh, supporting the refugees, first, uh, the situation benefits from the fact that there's a great sympathy uh, across Europe for the refugees and the, uh, the governments and their societies are being very welcoming to the, the Ukrainian refugees. But of course, since... You know, you can have some element of, you know, helping people relocate so that they don't all stay in Poland, let's say, if, if that's where they first go. And there is some of that going on with other states um, agreeing, um, you know, to take in some of the refugees. But I think a lot of uh, basically a lot of these people will end up staying nearby uh, to their home in, in Ukraine by you know, staying in Poland, let's say, or whichever of the first states they cross into. So that means yeah, that the EU and the other member states will want to supply more funding to support these refugees. But what you're kind of getting at there when you mentioned the democratic backsliding in Poland is there is this irony that the EU was in the middle of a process of using um, kind of the withholding of some of its uh, funding from the governments of Poland and Hungary, uh, which are both engaged in egregious violations of the rule of law and democratic norms of the EU. So they're trying to use their budget power to uh, get them to change what they're doing, right? And of course, now the pressure is, let's sweep all those issues under the rug because Poland really needs money now. Uh, and that, you know, on the one hand, that's understandable politically, but it would be very ironic, I think, you know, if... Um, the EU were to ignore the defense of uh, rule of law and democratic norms at the very moment when um, you know, people in Ukraine are fighting and dying to defend uh, the rule of law and democracy uh, you know, against uh, an authoritarian dictator. So uh, I think the answer there is that the EU can keep pressure on governments like Poland's and Hungary's to uh, respect democracy and the rule of law, while at the same time handing them specific earmarked funds for refugee support, right? Those those aren't mutually exclusive, right? So you can still cut off some of the funds that they maybe were using for corrupt purposes um, and you know infrastructure projects and things and just hand them specific funds that have to go to refugees. 
Well, Daniel Kellerman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I've been speaking with Daniel Kellerman, who is a professor of political science and law and the chair of the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University. He's the author of Eurolegalism, the Transformation of Law and Regulation in the European Union and the Rules of Federalism, Institutions and Regulatory Politics in the EU and Beyond. And he serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of the European Public Policy and the West European Politics and is a former member of the Executive Committee of the European Union Studies Association. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America One more light goes out in America